0: Brother brother There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a
1: way To bring some love in here today yeah. Welcome to Interchange I'm Doug Storm Our show today is demythologizing marches and the promise of direct action We open with What's Going On by Marvin Gaye because it is the title track from what he called his protest album of 1971, one that for me expresses both the popular awareness of the catastrophic actions of Western militarism and capitalism, but as well seems a kind of funeral dirge on the capability of protest movements to make real difference as opposed to cosmetic ones. Three tracks encompass issues we've only deepened and made worse, What's Going On is about violence and war, the war in Vietnam, and Official Police Brutality Against War Protesters, Mercy Mercy Me, The Ecology is About Poisoning the Environment, a song to accompany Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and Inner City Blues which states simply that as a society we don't care for our people, particularly people of color. Summing it up in its opening lyrics, we spend money on rockets and moonshots, not on the have-nots. Priorities. Hearing gay about fish full of mercury in 1971 and having only a public awareness that humans ought not to eat fish with mercury in it, and be sure we get proper labeling on our star-kissed cans, not that there should be no more poisoning of the planet, leaves one amazed at the power of complacency in this life. This is the way it is. But there were protests, and Rachel Carson did write the book that continues to be read and taught in schools, and protest did seem to stop a war. But what happened to the American left after the 60s? This is the question L.A. Kaufman seeks to answer in her book, Direct Action, Protest, and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. The book examines how movements from ACT UP to Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter have used disruptive tactics to catalyze change against long odds, creating a new kind of decentralized and multivocal radical politics in the process. But to what effect? When has direct action made an enormous, undeniable difference? And what subtle but positive changes have been brought about, at least in part, by nonviolent direct action? L.A. Kaufman joins us via Skype. L.A. Kaufman, welcome to Interchange.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, tell us, if you don't mind, uh, yeah, something about yourself. You've got quite a serious activist resume. Can you give us a little background?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I'm going to start with a shout out to the Midwest, which is where I grew up. I grew up outside of Milwaukee, so a little bit to your north. Um, And that's where I first became an activist. Uh, I got involved in uh, the the local chapter of the National Organization for Women when I was 16 years old, Mm -hmm. uh, back in in the, the very early Reagan years and I have been an organizer or activist of one kind or another ever since. Um, I've been involved in a huge array of movements. Sometimes I've been there as a journalist, sometimes as a participant, and in many cases as an organizer. Um, There are a number of campaigns and marches and causes that I've been very very deeply involved in over the years.
1: Well, uh, how how does the activist experience inform what you've done uh, also in your writing? You're very active as a journalist as well.
0: Um, yes, I mean, I've covered many movements over the years, um, but uh, most relevant to our conversation today, uh, for for decades now, actually for 25 years, I've been trying to puzzle out the question that, that you raised, what happened to the American left after the 60s? Um, this book that I published uh, that just came out a, a short while ago is a book that I, I thought about and, and researched and worked on off and on for 25 years, um, really trying to understand some very broad shifts that I was perceiving in the radical landscape, the activist landscape that I was moving through and participating in um, from the early 90s onward.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, let's uh, let's try to, I guess, define direct action if we can. I know it's a, a, obviously the the major part of the book. The title is direct action. Uh, before we get into the subtitle, we'll talk about that too. Uh, so, how do we define direct action?
0: Right. I mean, there are many many forms of, of activism and action that people can take, um, and I use direct action as the as the framework to understand this history of the left. I define direct action very broadly, though. There are people who opt for very narrow definitions uh, within some movements. But, but uh, the way that I look at it, there's a, there's a number of established channels of political participation, uh, voting, um, calling your legislator, um, speaking at public hearings. Um, and when those channels are unresponsive or are blocked, there are all kinds of other methods that people use um, to try to bring pressure on those in power. And it's all of those methods, a huge, vast toolbox of tactics that range from the mildest to the strongest that I characterize as direct action.
1: Hmm. So um, not just protesting, there's any number of things that you can do, uh, blocking streets, um, and your your focus is primarily on nonviolent direct action?
0: Yeah, I focus, I mean, the, the direct action uh, and in protest movements in, uh, across the board in the United States have been overwhelmingly nonviolent since the late 60s. Um, they, they, the number of incidences of violence against people from within grassroots movement are minuscule. And the number of instances of violence against property are still very modest and mm-hmm. very small. Um, o- overwhelmingly, um, our movements are, are nonviolent. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm looking at anything, it could be anything from Boycotts to blockades, um, from things like um, banner drops um, to sit-ins. Uh, you know, a huge. There's a huge array of different tactics that people use, all under this rubric of nonviolent direct action.
1: Right. It's an interesting uh, contrast to the way that uh, the government operates or the police operate. Uh, the direct action tends to be nonviolence against against state violence as much as anything else.
0: Um, w- sometimes it's coming up uh, directly against state violence, sometimes there's, there's merely the, the threat of it, mm-hmm. um, but certainly that is part of the dynamic oftentimes.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's unpack the rest of the, the, uh, the book's title. It's uh, Protest and uh, the Reinvention of uh, Radicalism in America. So what, uh, what is it that, um, first of all, I guess what was radical first, before it had to be reinvented? So how do we define radicalism before the reinvention?
0: Right. Well, uh, there again, um, I opt for a broad definition of radicalism. I don't necessarily uh, uh, use it to mean, you know, um, fiery fanatics who are, um, you know, uh, taking extremist action. Um, I think of the the connotation of going to the root, of Mm -hmm. radicalism going to the root. Um, So uh, when I talk about radicalism, I talk about. Um, activists and movements that tend to have uh, a very sweeping critique of uh, how power functions in society. They may be focused for the moment on very concrete, specific reforms um, that the but their their framework their whole perspective um, includes uh, a thoroughgoing critique of mm-hmm. how power operates in society.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, I, I mentioned at the top that our, I title uh, titled it uh, demythologizing um, marches in particular, but that's mostly because of something I, I actually read or heard you say in another interview, and it had to do with um, the civil rights uh, m- civil rights in the '60s and the, the march on Washington being. Being this massive thing that everybody sees as the way to do um, marches, the way to do protests, the thing that's effective, right? A giant march mm-hmm. on Washington, and then you have success, uh, civil rights legislation. And uh, it's a, it's important to say that's First of all, that was a a rare event in in, in itself, but uh, it's not a magic thing that happens in that in that mass event in the first place. The demonstration itself doesn't call things to action in a sense like there's not necessarily things that happen out of the demonstration because of the demonstration but because of the the things leading up to the demonstration as much as anything else.
0: Yeah, exactly. People tend to think of uh, demonstrations and and particularly big marches on Washington as a pressure tactic first and foremost. That's what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we use that model in our head of the 63 March on Washington as a mental model that this is what this is what it means if a protest is successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's large. Um, it has a defined leadership, it has specific goals, um, and uh, it, you know, it galvanizes the conscience, uh, not just of the nation, but of our governing institutions and leads to concrete pragmatic reform, leads to, uh, right. you know, in this case, a civil rights legislation. Um, you know, to the extent that that's a fair characterization of the 63 March uh, in itself, um, that. Is not the norm for big mm-hmm. protest marches. Um, they, the work that they do, the the the, the ways in which they they function, um, are often not first and foremost as pressure tactics. There are occasions when when they do, um, and they they can be an important index of of where popular sentiment is and how activated people are. Um, but they're much more important, by and large, as a movement-building tactic, mm. and so as punctuation in a larger campaign. That is what creates the change that people are seeking.
1: Oh, gotcha. I think at one point you said something that that struck me, and it sounded it sounded in your voice too when you said it. But often they, these uh, these large uh, demonstrations often demonstrate the scale of powerlessness. Can you explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, they they certainly can. That's that's the feeling I had uh, in a lot of the the big protests I went to in the 80s, mm. um, which would often be these these attempts at what seemed like unity, having a long list of issues that people were concerned about and giving voice to. So it'd be like for jobs, peace, and justice, and <laughs> right. you know, you you mm. get you know 40 or 50 thousand people together, which is a substantial crowd, and it, it takes a lot of organizational resources to bring that many people together. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they they were like shouting into the wind. It really was. Um, they they had uh, uh, no no measurable effect, not just uh, as pressure tactics, but in movement building. They seemed like they were just yeah about showing that we can stand together and have no impact together. <laughs> you <know>? Yes. yes. <laughs> so sol- solidarity and powerlessness, which is not you know unimportant, but right. isn't really enough to justify that level of uh, engagement.
1: Right, right. Well, we're 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 going to near uh, an, a break, but before we do that, I, I'd I'd like to start, uh, I guess, a little bit with how you start in the book. Uh, you you focus on the May Day protest of 1971. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Um, that is a uh, a really wild protest that almost nobody has heard about. It's the largest day of civil disobedience uh, in U.S. history, um, if if gauged by the number of arrests. More than seven thousand protesters were arrested. Um, not just by police, but by the actual military. This right. was a protest that so rattled the Nixon administration that they, they brought in the Marines, they brought in the Army, they brought in the National Guard, um, and swept everyone off the streets um, after uh, what the, the protesters' intention was to try to bring, uh, they said, to bring the government to a halt through mm-hmm. nonviolent action. If the government won't stop the war, the people will stop the government. Right.
1: Right? So that uh, you mentioned the, the amount of arrest there. So there, the idea of the organization there was to, to as you say, s- sort of stop workflow as much as anything else, right? Uh, get stop people from going to work, uh, stop government people from going to work as well. And, and as you say, stop the government from actually being able to operate in its people power.
0: Right. I mean, they were. it was a blockade of Washington, D.C. Right. Obviously, even if they had been completely right. successful doing right. that, that's not quite the same thing as right. actually stopping the government. But, right. you know, part of the effect of a, of a slogan like that is you know, the hyperbole and right. the, you right. know, the kind of dashing threat that comes with it. Um, you know, they, they did actually pretty much disrupt uh, the normal functioning of many, many offices in um, D.C. There were even three members of Congress who had to canoe across the Potomac.
1: <laughs> I read that, that was together. hilarious, okay. <laughs> right, right. I'd like to have uh, seen that. Did they get that on tape?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Mm, okay. I don't think, you know, people, uh, no, there weren't as many people with cell phone cameras no, true. in those that's days. True. There were a, a, few, a bit fewer of those. Um, but the... the um, uh, but but they had announced where they were going to blockade they mm-hmm. had announced these tact these targets all throughout the city which was the main focus of the protesters so of course once the the policy decision was made to sweep people up it was easy enough to send troops right. uh, to all of these different th- blockading points and just sweep everybody off the streets
1: right well the shocking the shocking thing about that was the sort of uh, uh, initiation I guess of, of a martial martial law at that point right this is you know just sweeping people up 7,000 people they were behind uh, a large number of them behind uh, fences in rfk stadium is that right yeah
0: yeah they 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 filled the jail very quickly and so they had thousands of people that they just held in an outdoor pen i mean you know somebody put a joke sign that said smash the state concentration camp on the outside of the stadium but it it was a very shocking violation of civil liberties i mean the the, right. the scale of it was quite extraordinary
1: well, uh, we're going to have to go to a break. Uh, we're going to go to that break with "Shut 'Em Down" by Gil Scott Heron off the album uh, 1980. The song was written for a No Nukes concert organized by Musicians United for Safe Energy. Shut 'Em Down, if that's the only way to keep them from melting down. More with L. A. Kaufman and direct action protest when Interchange returns. Shut em down, shut em down.
2: Support for WFHB comes from Juanita's Restaurant, located at 620 West Kirkwood. Juanita's Restaurant is a family owned and operated business that brings Mexican cuisine to Bloomington, Indiana. Catering service is also available. More information at 812 339 2340 or online at Juanita's.com. And WFHB enjoys support from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe, located in downtown Bloomington. More information available online at the-uptown.com.
1: Welcome back to Interchange. This is uh, WHB. I'm on WHB. Oh, sorry, I got confused there for a minute. I'm joined by journalist, activist, and historian of protest movements, L.A. Kaufman. She's just published a book with Verso. 25 years in the making, she tells us. Uh, not every day or every uh, week or every year, perhaps, right, L.A. Kaufman? But uh, a lot of life went into that.
0: Yeah, there were some breaks along the
1: way. <laughs> a few breaks. The book is Direct Action, Protest, and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. Before the break, we we talked about what direct action is. We talked a little bit about uh, the 1971's May Day protest that resulted in uh, mass arrests and a de facto martial law implemented by the cowering Nixon administration. You mentioned, I think, that it really, you, you think it really affected the Nixon administration. They were really quite nervous about this kind of demonstration. Were they, were they literally nervous for their lives I mean uh, there's a sense that I'm not sure what 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 scares the government that much uh, in in this country
0: I mean it's kind of extraordinary that you know here it was it was really a bunch of hippies who had pledged (laughs) to be nonviolent right so there was a there was a limit to what they were going to do they weren't they were they were very deliberately turning their back on some of the street fighting tactics Mm -hmm. that had been used in some of the protests in 68 and 69 but there was so you know it was it was this the specter of mass noncompliance. Mm. It really was you know resistance being brought right to the doorstep of the White House that uh, unnerved uh, Nixon so much that that there's evidence that it 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 helped push him to really look for a, an exit from Vietnam, and hmm. that it, it had an impact um, beyond what many of the other earlier marches, including the huge mass marches with many more people. And this May Day protest only had about 25,000 participants um, compared to, you know, some of the anti-war marches that were more like a half a million. Right. And, um to me, one of the one of the, the lessons I take from it, it was a, a protest that people at the time saw as a failure, mm-hmm. partly because so many people had been swept up off the streets before right. they were able to, to sustain their blockades, um, partly because it was criticized so thoroughly for being unruly and disruptive and rude. Mm. And when I look at um, the history of how change has been made, Oftentimes, it's been by movements that have been unruly and disruptive and
1: rude. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, I don't, I don't recall um, in the, the March on Washington, you have a, a sort of legal, organized um, event, you know, a planned event, right? That is, uh, mm-hmm. was this, the May Day protest, I assume, is uh, intended to be illegal. Is that, is that right? Or? Oh,
0: absolutely, yeah. They did, yeah. Not, they did not negotiate permits right. from the right. government. There was, no, there was no established march route. They, they published right. a map that said, we're going to shut this down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, by definition, they were, they were taking illegal action. Um, you know, they were doing so out of a, of a sense of higher conscience mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the classic Gandhian vein, even though they were opting for a style of direct action that was more... Um, you know, aggressive and uh, colorful and flamboyant than we associate mm. with Gandhi. Um, they weren't going to sit down and passively wait to be arrested and, and carted off. They were going to drag newspaper boxes and all kinds, of, you know, and, and cars into the streets and block block the government from functioning in that way.
1: hmm hmm Well, um, let's let's move to uh, another. one. I know this is a sort of a history of protest, a history of direct action, and uh, and there's there are too many of them to cover, and we're going to run out of time by trying to get to just a few. So let's, let's, uh, let's jump a little bit and go to the clamshell alliance. Uh, you say that uh, Occupy may have taken some of their uh, ideas from this uh, and uh, other Quaker-influenced uh, movements. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wh- the May Day protest was the first attempt to, to organize a big national mobilization on a decentralized basis, to have mm-hmm. a decentralized organizational structure. And that idea gets picked up uh, at the Seabrook uh, New Hampshire, the site of the the planned nuclear plant there. Um, in the mid 70s, there's you know the announcement that that a nuclear plant will be built um, right along the coast in, in uh, Seabrook, New Hampshire, and a whole bunch of uh, local folks, um, including some local Quakers, begin to mobilize against it, and they they decide that they're going to have a series of escalating direct actions at the site uh, where the where the um, the plant is is going to be built, and you know, over the the next few years, it unfolds um, both as a campaign there in Seabrook, but also inspires similar groups all around the country to. Um, uh, to not just take direct action, but they do so with a very deliberate um, embrace of a decentralized participatory structure. They, they make decisions with through a process called consensus. They organize themselves in these small groups called affinity groups, hmm. um, all of which sounds kind of arcane, but ends up being the model that gets used time and time and time again in big protests um, in the ensuing decades.
1: Hmm. Well, there's some arguments, and I've heard them, I don't know if rec- uh, too recently, but arguments in the Occupy space, uh, that too much attention was paid to that process, that, that things got bogged down in that kind of activity, trying to um, respond to um, various, you know, uh, every member having a voice and every every member trying to get their, their voice heard, does that sort of bog down uh, how things work sometimes? It sounded like clamshell is a success. Um, Occupy, I guess, I'm not sure we see as a success, even if it had had success, um, it definitely um, how would you compare the two? I suppose.
0: Right. I mean, I am not a I am not a fan of consensus process. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 very peculiar how it became adopted uh, in kind of lefty circles and seen as intrinsically more democratic than other forms, because it's based on a set of theological assumptions mm. um, from the Quaker faith, uh, which are that if you um, if you deliberate long enough, the spirit will will manifest itself oh, in the okay. in the in the conversations of the group, right? There's a that. there's a sense that you know it's worth sitting there through those hours and hours of discussion because eventually God's will, mm-hmm. God's truth will be revealed. Um, that doesn't actually translate so well to a secular context <laughs> where you have people with wildly different beliefs, um, and more importantly, with sometimes with competing interests that mm-hmm. simply cannot be reconciled. You could sit there debating until you're blue in the face or as often would happen with these meetings until people drift away so that the decision ends up getting made by just a handful of people you know six <laughs> right. hours after the meeting started yeah. um you know that the, the that must desire, be god's voice then yeah i guess so yeah. <laughs> you know whoever did god's voice is the person with right. the most caffeine in their bloodstream or something um
1: longest staying I power mean,
0: exactly um yeah so there's you know there's a way the the, the the democratic, small d democratic impulse behind it is very appealing to me but mm-hmm. in practice consensus has, it's a process that works well in small homogenous groups. If mm-hmm. you've got like a team or a, an affinity group, it's a it's a great process because you don't want to move forward in a small group like that if you can't all come to some compromise. Mm-hmm. But for larger groups um, and particularly for large groups who are dealing with time pressure mm-hmm. um, you know, who are in the middle of an occupation and suddenly have to deal with the police coming, or right. you know, um, or dealing uh, in the case of the Occupy Wall Street, you know, they had all this money to deal with. They got all these donations, trying to deal with all of that stuff through a consensus process simply does not work well. Mm. And. Um, um, absolutely bogged down mm. uh, numerous movements that tried it.
1: Well, you know, you mentioned uh, left, uh, left organization, lefty movements as well. And, and, and while it's pretty clear that when you talk about things that we tend to use anti in front of, right, anti-apartheid, anti-war, anti-nukes, um, anything you can think of is a left movement that can have some crossover to, depending on the group, depending on the, the argument, depending on the protest, but they tend to be left movements. But uh, they also are easily caricatured. Right. They, they do tend to lend themselves to a bit of uh, unintentional uh, humor in in the sort of left. And you mentioned hippies before. We tend to in this country make light and make fun of people who who stand up in that space and and, you know, nonviolently hold up your your flower against the the guns pointing at you.
0: I mean, yes, but we also um I think we also have deep uh, traditions of of admiring activist sure. movements. Um, you know, there's a way in which, you know, it, it's like a movement has to be uh, have happened uh, a certain period in the past for it to get that glow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the civil rights movement has that glow in our history. Now we think of it as being that um, uh, that the the, the the people who um, you know took risks for that movement we see as national heroes, and we think of there being a broad moral consensus in favor of what they did. Um, And uh, to the extent that there is one now, and obviously, with Jeff Sessions as the Attorney General of the United States, there's a real limit to the extent that we could say that there's a, a national consensus right now around civil rights. But certainly at the time, you know, uh, actions like the lunch counter sit ins mm-hmm. were hugely controversial. Right. Um, hugely controversial. And many people and many figures, uh, you know, Dr. King was hugely controversial. Many people denounced him as a communist and a troublemaker, outside agitator. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these cliches that we hear come up again again and again about protesters Um, so you know uh, being uh, being made fun of being unpopular being criticized it all just goes with the territory and if you you have to learn how to shrug it off shrug it off and and hopefully laugh at yourself along the way
1: right we're nearing another break but let me ask real quick uh, is there is there a problem now uh, trying to understand protest and organization within a, a a vast security state that we have now
0: um I, you know, the, the the security state has been building for a long time, mm-hmm, and there sure. certainly have been moments when um, actions by the security state have been quite successful in dampening protest. There's a lot of. Um, Worrisome signs on the horizon. There are, there's cause for concern right now. But at the moment, I think we're seeing a very robust set of resistance movements mm-hmm. that are very effectively claiming all kinds of political space, mm-hmm. physical and metaphoric.
1: Great. Well, let's go, let's go ahead and go to a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We'll listen to "Glad to Be Gay" by the British punk new wave group Tom Robinson Band, written for a 1976 London Gay Pride Parade. It's considered Britain's national gay anthem since its release in 1978. More on protest and direct action when Interchange returns. <laughs> One of these I've
2: heard. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville. Community radio for South Central Indiana. Online at WFHB.org. It is 6.01 in the p.m. and the current temperature is 77 degrees. Tonight, forecast low at 59 degrees. Tomorrow, Wednesday, mostly cloudy conditions, a high of 79, a low overnight of 63. Thursday, a 90% chance of rain, also a 79 degree forecast high, 50 degrees forecast for an overnight low. And on Friday, cooling down, a high of 63 degrees forecast with a low of 44 degrees.
1: Tidbits of Playboy Page three of the sun There's no news in gay news Or one magazine But they still found excuses To call it obscene Read how disgusting We are in the press The Telegraph, people And Sunday Express Molesters of children corruptors of youth Is there in the paper It must be the truth try. And sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey, sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Don't try to kid us that if you're Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. We're talking today about protest and direct action and its efficacy in making change. L.A. Kaufman, author of a new book on the topic, joins us via Skype. Uh, uh, I know that the book specifies American radicalism, and we just heard a song by the British group Tom Robinson Band, but between that song and Lou Reed's Halloween Parade, I felt glad to be gay served us better as a protest, or at least was more obviously political. Halloween Parade offers something of, I I think, more of a personal and nostalgic sense of the era. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, uh, the Tom Robinson song is, is, is... uh, puts it in your face. You know here here are the things that we're attacking you know here we're being attacked as a group and and we have to speak out against it. So far we've covered the 1971 May Day protest that prompted the largest number of arrests in the U.S. On, is that on a single day uh, L.A. Kaufman yes, over 7,000? Yes, on a single day. Yeah, that's most in a single day. Yeah, and then the anti-nuke uh, clamshell alliance from the early 70s and I, I think that Three Mile Island had the partial meltdown in 1975. I think that's right. Um, seventy-nine. Is that is it seventy-nine? Okay, thank you. Yeah. And um, and before the uh, before the break, you mentioned uh, lunch counter sit-ins. Uh, these uh, these are interesting too, in a sense that uh, the nonviolent protest there uh, seems very intentional. In terms of wanting to draw out, you know, the the action you're protesting against, right? The, the, to draw out the worst in the in the people you're protesting against, to draw out the worst in the policies that you're fighting against. You know, the the action itself provokes violence frequently, um, and is that a pr- a pretty common tactic? I mean, it obviously was one at that time.
0: Right. I mean, there's there's um, the principle uh, of making the, the invisible visible. That's an important aspect of direct action. So sometimes that can be by physically going to a place where destruction is happening, right? That's the, the Dakota Access Pipeline mm-hmm. protest, the encampments there, um, you know, by, uh, you know, first of all, just, just staying there, just physically being there, that draws attention and a spotlight that otherwise would, would not be there. <clears throat> and then when people... Go a step farther as they as they did in that movement, and um, actually try to block, for in their case bulldozers or um, earth-moving equipment. Um, yes, that that often will provoke a response, and sometimes, as we we saw um, in the Dakotas, a very violent response mm-hmm. by the authorities. Um, you know, the 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 water hoses that there's sure. there's a parallel water hoses right. coming out again right. um, as a tool of repression against protests. Um so it can,, um, you know, that kind of um, protest can be very risky for people to take part of. it's, it's, it's it, it can be um, require real courage.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's an interesting, uh, as we move into the next one, I'm going to talk a little bit about ACT up and uh, um, AIDS awareness as well. Uh, there's an interesting, I think, um, maybe it's not a pattern, but the the thing that sort of begins to to come out in some sense is that a lot of uh, protest, uh... tends to be uh, about particular groups right who have been um, ostracized and uh, denigrated and um, treated very badly in this country. So um, I think I was I was reading Manning Marable's book on Malcolm X, and he talks about a quiet period in the 40s, maybe uh, against so no real protests or no. He's like re- it really was quiet because there weren't uh, there wasn't a lot of black anger at that time or a lot of black activism at that time. That wasn't that things were right or good. It was just that there that group had been quiet for a time, and you know with, with with the uh, Dakota Pipeline, as, as you say as well, this is a particular group standing up and, and against being used and abused, uh, uh, one small example in centuries of abuse. Um, and here, uh, as we move into this next one, ACT UP, you have a, another group that stands up uh, against what is as much... Um, what, uh, not just abuse, but uh, as you say, invisibility, you know, le- le- letting letting uh, a disease run rampant without doing, you know, without the government itself making any uh, efforts to, to make a change. So tell us a little bit about ACT UP, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, people who, didn't live through the worst years of the AIDS crisis may not realize just the, the shocking level of murderous neglect mm-hmm. by our government. Mm-hmm. Um, the extent to which, um, people with HIV were treated as pariahs, um, the amount of fear mongering, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of AIDS hysteria as well as then very real fear, because at that point, uh, HIV infection was an almost near certain death sentence. And, um, the the activist group act up which formed uh, in response to the the aids crisis um is is just an incredible model of organizing they i think of them as the single most effective mm. activist group uh, in the united states over the last 40 years um because there are literally millions of people who are alive today who would not be had it not been for their work and uh, part of what's striking about ACT UP is that it was never a large movement by, um, by uh, even the standards of you know American social movements. They certainly never had a quarter of a million people march on Washington. They never even had a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. I think their largest actions, um, which were big um, direct actions at the National Institutes for Health and and the Food and Drug Administration. The number of participants was maybe fifteen thousand, maybe twenty thousand, so mm. kind of in the ballpark of that May Day protest. Um, you know, not nothing, but uh, we we aren't talking about the the huge march on Washington. We're not talking about the women's marches. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a different kind of organizing. Um, it's well, what's small... the playbook? Then?
1: Yeah, what's the playbook then?
0: Right. right. So it's um, it's absolutely relentless and tenacious. Mm. Um, um, um but also uh just so pragmatic yes so pragmatic and so action focused i can remember back in the heyday of act up you know you'd go to a meeting of act up new york the meetings were always packed hundreds of people and at the end of the meeting there would almost always be two or three actions that had been decided on that were going to happen either that night or within the next 24 hours Mm. i mean people just did not mess around nobody felt they had time Mm -hmm, i mean people mm -hmm. were 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 visibly ill and right. dying in the room. And usually every meeting started with tributes to members who had died in the preceding mm. week. Mm. And so there was an incredible sense of urgency And a willingness, you know, not just they were very rude and very in your face, but they were also really pragmatic. They would look for very concrete, specific changes that they could win, Hmm. winnable fight after winnable fight. And they were willing when necessary um, and whenever possible to sit down with their adversaries and make very concrete proposals. So they um, they weren't just an outsider movement. They would sit down, when they got invited to sit down with pharmaceutical company executives, they did. Mm-hmm. And they didn't just show up and, and yell slogans. They showed up with a very detailed treatment plan that, mm-hmm. that recommended very specific reforms in testing protocols.
1: Well, that seems a really, uh, really important distinction here in this group, right? The idea that there is a, a very uh, distinct cohort of people who have a very real urgent issue that they live in, right? It's in their life and it's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, but they see it happening all around them versus the way uh, in which many of these things have a kind of abstraction as they get larger too, uh, a kind of way in which we can be protesting and then go back home and not care or not worry or it doesn't affect us. A a lot of protest seems to be uh, in that space. So this one uh, very clearly Um, had the sort of impetus to, to make change out of sheer necessity.
0: Right. And I see echoes of that character in the movement in Ferguson and, mm-hmm. the, the, and Black Lives Matter and the way in which, you know, the same the uh, uh, you know, it was a, it was a, uh, a different set of circumstances that were were inspiring that sense of, of mortality and, and risk and threat. Um, but, you know, the the series of of uh, brutal police and well-publicized police killings, that sense that I could be next right. uh, so motivated the protesters in, in Ferguson and in many other cities who who spoke out um, against police brutality. It was a similar kind of um, politics that, that had, um, had grief and fear and anger all bound together at the core.
1: Mm. Well, uh, that's, that is an interesting point, too. I think it, it is one of those, um, you know, the idea that you, you are living on the precipice uh, does give, like you say, some urgency to your, to your actions and some strength. To your to to what you're going to do, you know you're not going to back down from it, and that's that's an important thing. Uh, let's sh- shift, uh, uh, I guess, quickly if we can. I know it's I guess, the hour runs quickly. So um, a- around the same time though is the uh, uh, as uh, Act Up, and um, I guess that was around mid '80s, '87 is Act Up. Larry Kramer f- forms that out of his. His previous group was a gay men's health crisis, was mm-hmm. also a Larry, Larry Kramer. He felt they weren't um, militant enough. Is that, is that a fair charactera- yep. characterization? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, uh, then there was also uh, at the same time the Free South African Movement. This was around 1985 that you say was pretty much the antithesis of the uh, organizing style of May Day 1971 and Seabrook and its successors. How so?
0: Well, the the Free South Africa movement um, was a series of protests that took part took uh, place over the course of more than a year. Be- began um, with uh, you know some 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 prominent figures going to try to have a meeting with the ambassador of South Africa, and uh, when he refused to meet with them, they they stayed and were arrested, and it, it turned into. Um, uh, they hadn't planned this at the start it wasn't uh, it wasn't a campaign that had been planned in advance in the way that say the Montgomery bus boycott had mm-hmm. this kind of um, th- w- was uh, pulled together very quickly after these first set of arrests people began to go back day after day after day and they would get arrested in front of the South African embassy mm-hmm. um, uh, that part of it was All planned. The arrests themselves were very orchestrated. There was a specific place where, well, you know, once you started singing in front of the embassy, that counted as a protest, and you would be arrested. Um, The arrests were very ritualized and pro forma. You would be released very quickly with a modest fine or nothing at all. Um, uh, uh, But they they continued day after day after day, and they brought in all kinds of people who wouldn't normally. Part in a a civil disobedience action, there would be there were many members of Congress who came and were arrested. There were many prominent figures um, from a range of different movements. There were would be these theme days. There would be school teachers one day or um, clergy another day, Um, and it just was was um, just was. Uh, ongoing, day after day after day, and ended up um, being being one piece of what sparked a, a much uh, larger movement, including a campus-based movement that called on colleges and universities to divest from South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, which ended up being a, a really crucial lever um, in the South African freedom struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a case of protest. They weren't on, you know, it wasn't unruly and um, disruptive in, in the way that, um, say, May Day had been uh but they had their own power and in particular they came there had been a span of of a a, Almost two decades when um, there was really very little direct action in African-American communities. And the, the Free South Africa movement marks this turning point where you start to see a re-embrace um, after several decades of distancing of direct action in uh, black activist circles.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, we have to go to another break. This is uh, well, we're going to listen to. Let's lynch the landlord by the dead Kennedys. And we'll be back with L.A. Kaufman and direct action when interchange returns on WFHB.
0: Landlords here to visit. They're back in Disco Down below. Says I'm in the rent because I'm building too damned. You're going to help us in it all. But so we can. You know we can. But so
1: we, you know we can.
2: Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening. Featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe located in downtown Bloomington. More information available online at the-uptown.com. And support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com.
1: Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. My guest today is L.A. Kaufman, journalist, columnist, activist, historian. She's been a reporter and a participant in many protests over the last 25 or more years, and she's distilled much of that experience into her new book, Direct Action, Protest, and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. Uh, before the break, we, uh, you actually mentioned uh, a boycott, I guess, uh, in uh, the Free South African Movement, uh, uh, and it seemed to be a successful boycott. Is that correct?
0: Yes, the divestment movement, which pressured uh, universities and colleges around the country to divest their holdings in -hmm. companies doing business with South Africa, was uh, extremely effective. Nelson Mandela himself credited the movement for having made an important contribution to the Mm. end of apartheid in South Africa.
1: Castro and divestment, two things that worked well together there. Um, the uh, so how do we can we shift to the the boycott now the boycott for uh, BDS which is I guess uh, boycott divestment and sanctions against uh, Israel that's that doesn't seem to be having the same effect is that is that how you you read it as well
0: well I think that campaign um, has been unfolding on uh, uh, you know it's a a more controversial issue and it's unfolding at a more modest scale mm-hmm. um, than than the the campaign of, of uh, boycotts and, and divestment around south, south africa but i think that that tactic um, it is a is a, a remarkably effective one mm-hmm. uh, it's one that enables people to leverage power locally. People are using a very similar approach um, now around the pipelines with Mm -hmm. Trump with Trump in office and um, a uh, pro fossil fuels administration um, pressuring banks to divest from Mm -hmm. investing in pipelines. uh, It's another example of where people are using that kind of lever to create the kind of change they'd like to see. Mm. Um, Getting an entire government to change is harder than getting (laughs) a bank to change. Right. (laughs) Right, So, um, you know, uh, uh, what you know, the, the, the case of the, um, the pipeline protest is a case of people shifting from, you know, the primary target, the government to a secondary target, the economic, um, you know, with, with, uh, with BDS, um, it's a more complicated, right. um, overall picture.
1: Right. Maybe not as black and white, black and white an issue as well in some sense, right? South Africa, we had Reagan, uh, being, uh, supporting, uh, South Africa and apartheid. And, and I think at some point, uh, you know, b- I guess, supporting a white supremacist nation uh, begins to have a, a, um, a bad, <clears throat> excuse me, leave a bad taste in your mouth. <clears throat> Maybe. Well, uh, it,
0: until that starts becoming the official policy of the
1: u.s government right, again right, I
0: mean, right, you know right. <laughs> what goes around comes around and
1: yes so uh, but, we get a little nervous well, yeah, about white those supremacy
0: things Supremacy doesn't really go out of style
1: yeah and, that's true that's true
0: certain
1: circles um so well, as we as we uh, come to the, the the come down the home stretch i suppose of the show we should we should try to jump into the present as much as possible uh, but uh we also have to look uh, look still a little bit in the past uh with the 2003 anti-war protest in new york city there was it was a massive protest as well that had little to no effect on 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 the Iraq war being uh, prosecuted.
0: Yes, now that's an example of of an event that I was very centrally involved in. I was the mobilizing coordinator for that protest and all the major anti-war protests that took place in New York in in 2003 and 2004, Mm -hmm. um, which meant I oversaw the, the whole grassroots operation that got people out in the streets, um, which we did, uh, you know, an enormously successful and effective job at. We, um, you know, people were very very motivated to take action to try to stop that war. And uh, February fifteenth, two thousand three, uh, still stands as the largest single day of protest in world history, with millions of people in cities on every continent around the globe um, saying no to war. And uh, George Bush essentially shrugged his shoulders and said, "So what? Right. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you, millions of you say no, and guess right. what? say yes." And so, here we
1: still are. yeah.
0: and here, and here we still are, uh, you know, in a war that that essentially has not ended, right? right. These consequences are con, are continuing to play out many years later. Um, uh, the the contrast between You know, what in many ways felt like extremely effective organizing, just measured by numbers, um, and um, inconsequential effect. Uh, was very sobering, um, mm-hmm. very depressing. Um, and it is certainly one of the things that that got me thinking hard about what protests do and don't accomplish, what what kinds of protests work and when and how. Um, and and again, that that question we touched on earlier about what mobiliz- what mass mobilizations do and do not do. Right. Um, you know, I look at the at the anti-war movement, and I certainly, I mean I was on the the losing side on a number of internal fights about which, course of action to take in those protests. I was an advocate of us. Um, We got embroiled in in very difficult negotiations with the NYPD over March permits, um, Mm -hmm. which they refused. And I was in the camp that thought we should march anyway in defiance of the the police, even if our numbers had been much smaller. Um, Now, I can't say that that would have in fact changed the outcome of history or or deterred um, George Bush from going to war. and, um, and even at the time, that that choice was counterposed to a different choice that was made within the anti-war movement, which was to prioritize truly multiracial coalition work. Hmm. Um, and um, it was, in many cases, the groups of color who were saying, "No, we shouldn't march. It's too risky for our members. We don't want to take that chance." Hmm. And, um, when I look, back at the work that we did in those days and look at it now from, you know, a longer term vantage point, I see how that the relationships that were built within the anti-war movement bore fruit later on in Ferguson, Missouri, Mm -hmm. for instance. Um, There were relationships that were built within the anti-war movement that actually helped foster the way that that um, movement Transformed itself from uh, an uprising, essentially a set of riots, into an actual movement with 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 political force and focus. Um, I see it in the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. There's many other contexts in which the relationships that were built um, in those difficult years of anti-war organizing bore fruit later on.
1: Mm-hmm. No, we, we were just, talking before about that idea that how you, it's hard to understand your, I guess your uh, quote-unquote ROI on anything like this, right? How how it can find its way into the future of action as well. Uh, what you do may not have uh, immediate effect at, at that moment, but as you say it might seed other movements as you go forward. Um, one of the things that seems problematic always to me in, in this situation is that I can agree with a lot of what you're saying, agree with the uh, the tactics, agree with what happens, agree with the protest. Um, and as you say, watch watch the world walk on no matter what. Watch George Bush, you know, go ahead with the war. Watch as we now have Donald Trump as president. Watch as our Congress and um, uh, always moves against Popular opinion now—it seems like if you look at any poll, uh, popular opinion does seem to want to do what we might call the right thing, <laughs> and government moves against it. So, how is it that we, you know, what can we do? You mentioned Black Lives Matter. You—I uh, assume we're—we're going to think about this in terms of a positive uh, force as we go forward, perhaps using uh, appropriate tactics uh, for direct action. Uh, is there—is um, there hope in Black Lives Matter to build to build new coalition? to to find ways that we're going to have to struggle i think very seriously against donald trump and this administration
0: yeah i mean i think there's hope in in black lives matter um the larger movement for black lives and many many other forces that are that are in motion right now i mean uh, you know i, I certainly uh, you know i i i am an activist by disposition i i um I look for signs of hope. I look for um, the things that we've accomplished. I hold on to our victories and celebrate them because it keeps me going. But I also genuinely feel that the, the resistance that we've seen spring up since the inauguration um, is a uh, has a really very distinctive and promising character. And and part of what's promising about it is really how how diverse it is and how decentralized it is, how how much of it is springing up from local self-organized groups. Um, For instance, um, there are more than 6,000 indivisible groups that have sprung up around the country um, with people um, who are using as, uh, in part or in whole, using um, this action guide called the Indivisible Guide Mm. produced by some former members of Congress um, who um, who based their their template on on what they learned from watching the Tea Party in action, um, you know. There's many other forms. The Women's March. Um, there were 5,000 small group gatherings after that, called called huddles, um, based on uh, the the women's consciousness raising groups of the early 70s. Um, so there's there are people in um, you know I think coming up uh, in the next couple of weekends, we're going to see a a lot of um, very uh, vibrant protests with the the science march coming up this weekend. Um, And next weekend, there's there's a big climate march in DC followed Mm -hmm. by on Monday, May Day, which will be Mm -hmm. a big day. It will be a day without immigrants. There will be a huge immigrant rights uh, protest all around the country, um, as well as many other kinds of actions. uh, so i think that the that the resistance that has sprung up um it, it's you know it will be it will take time before we can see as we've been discussing what right. it really can and can't accomplish but right now it already is evident that it's it's slowed down the Trump administration's plans. You know, mm. I think Steve Bannon rolled into the White House with a much more aggressive agenda than he's been able to implement. Um, and um, we can take credit for that by mm. all of the, the protests that have been in the streets um, delegitimizing Donald Trump and, and, and contributing to a sense of crisis around his administration.
1: Well, crisis is a good way to put it. Uh, I guess a little bit I've been nervous just about things like uh, what's been happening, what happened at Berkeley. Uh, uh, recently <clears throat> with a group of, you know, neo-Nazi, you know, white supremacist fascists that, that seem I- intent on doing their own kind of direct action.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a very, a very thuggish set. One wonders, you know, what's really going on there It was obviously quite ugly. Um, and, um, you know, uh, one can hope that uh, that 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 stays as small and as isolated as it is as it is now.
1: I do hope so. Um, well, that's our show. Thank you, L. A. Kaufman, for joining us today and offering lessons in direct action and protest. We should take heed. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We'll close today's program with the song "Sasol" by Amantla, the African National Congress cultural group led by Jonas Gwanga. Released in 1982, Sasol was the major state-owned oil refinery with headquarters in Johannesburg. Some of the words translated from Zulu, we shall get them, we shall revenge in the evenings, in the dark. They are spending sleepless nights because of the spear of the nation. They have no peace of mind because the spear will exterminate them. They have no place to hide because we are everywhere. We, the spear of the nation. Next time on Interchange, the Stones of Reason. Direct action and reform politics meet in apartheid South African playwright Atoll Fugard's 1989, My Children, My Africa. Within the ruling class, apartheid violence of white South Africa sits a play with a taste for moderation and order in debate and the recognition of the political uses of speech. But the debate is not just between the obvious, black and white, powerful and powerless, privileged and impoverished, it's also between old and young, tradition and revolution, male and female, private and public, talk and action. A local production directed by IU professor Murray McGibbon is set to open on April 27th, and I'll speak with McGibbon, who is South African, about his assertion that the play is a plea for education over violence and thoughtful consideration rather than hot-headedness. But we have to ask, Who's writing that curriculum? The Stones of Reason, Athol Fugard's My Children, My Africa, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Jennifer Brooks is board engineer. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB. I
0: was in a point of... I was in